If you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to be yet again, continuing on in our series on shalom. Shalom being this idea of, of peace, of harmony, of the thing, way God intended it to be, and looking at it in three different areas, looking at shalom in our relationships uh, with God and with each other, and looking now at shalom in creation, and then in a couple weeks here we'll start shalom in culture. So continuing on, we've been in Genesis 1 a lot. Uh, but that's, that's okay. It's good to start in the beginning, for the beginning points us in the direction that things are going. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll read the scripture again. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water... Under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry ground appear. And so it was. And God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and seed trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let the, there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. 
Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So we've looked at this Genesis account account a number of different times in this sermon series, and we're going to do it yet again, especially as we talk about what it means for us as human beings to have a relationship with the creation around us. Genesis is an important text because it really does set everything up for us. It's the foundation. And within this text, we find a a little bit of the mind of God about what he intends for creation, and in particular for us, what he intends for us as human beings in relationship to the rest of creation. And so one of the things that's helpful here is to step back and recognize what is happening in this Genesis account. I think one of the things that we've done, and and if you've been here for a while and you've heard me preach about this text a number of times, you, you understand my approach to Genesis 1. I think one of the things that we've done is we've reduced the text to be some sort of scientific explanation for how the world came to be. And that's just not what Genesis 1 is meant to be at all. It is not an account of the progression, progressive evolution of things. It is not an account of how God moved from one day of, like, this, 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 making of things in terms of, of, of higher level organisms, right? It's not this progression upwards. I mean, we can read that into the text, but that's not the primary goal of what the writer of Genesis was trying to communicate to us. Rather, this is a, an account in poetic form of, of God giving function to the different elements of creation. So so here's what I mean by this. If you were to take the creative count and just kind of set it out in its six days, what you would see is that the first three days have to do with God creating environments, right? There's the light and the darkness. This is a particular environment. Then God creates the vault and the sky and the water, and then God creates the land, there's three day, in the first three days, we see three levels of creation. Then the next three days, days four, five, and six, are when God creates inhabitants for those environments. So if we wanted to chart it out, it would look something like this. On day one and day four, these are connected. Day one, we create light and dark, and the inhabitants of light and dark then are the sun, moon, and the stars, the greater light, the lesser light, and the stars of the heavens. Right? On days two, oops, two and five, we have the sea and the sky, right? And these then are related to the fish and the birds. And then on days three and six, we have dry land and we have animals and humans. So days one through three, we create in, God creates environments. On days four through six, God creates inhabitants. <laughs> now, the, the inhabitants within their environments 
also are given tasks. They aren't just placed in their environment and then like, okay, do whatever. On each of, the, each of the inhabitants is given a particular task. The sun, moon, and stars are given the tasks of marking sacred times, days, and years. Right? So if you think about Israel and how important the festivals are, Sukkot, Yom Kippur, Passover, these are incredibly important sacred times throughout the year, and you know that you have arrived at these particular times because of the governing of the sun, moon, and stars in the light and the dark, right? The, an- the, the birds and the fish are also given a task within their environment of the sky and the waters, and they are tasked with being fruitful and multiplying and filling it. It's their responsibility. This is what God has called them to do. And then the animals and the humans are given a very similar task. Fill the earth and multiply. Be fruitful, right? So just for a moment, what I want us to recognize is how similar the task human beings, similar the task that human beings are given is to the rest of the creatures. Yes, we have a little bit of a different one and we'll get to that in a second, but let's not jump too far ahead. Birds, fish, animals are all told to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Humans are told to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. It's very, very similar. And so (laughs) we have to recognize something here. And it's very simple, but we've got to remember this. Human beings are fundamentally creatures. We are creatures. And there are aspects to our creatureliness that is no different than the other creatures. We eat, we sleep, we die, we return to dust. In these ways, we are more like creatures, dogs, cats, birds, fish. We are more like these creatures in these ways than we are like God. Right? And I think that we have to remember this because so often we see ourselves as some sort of demigods who are above creation. We are above the creatures. When really we share a lot of creatureliness with these people that we surround ourselves with, well, not the people, but the animals, the, the, the creatures around us. We share much in common. And to say this isn't to devalue humans. I, I, think, I think we bristle against the idea of, of connecting ourselves or seeing ourselves on, on a similar playing field with the animals and the birds and the fish is because we don't value them enough. That in our pride projects, in our ego, we have placed ourselves over them and, and assumed this role of a demigod of some sort rather than recognizing that we share the same breath of life as the creatures around us. That God created environments, and within those environments, he placed inhabitants, and those inhabitants, he assigned tasks. And we are one of many. And for much of what we are called to do, it is the same as the other creatures. Now, this also acknowledges another idea. And the idea is that as God created the different elements of creation, both the environments and the inhabitants, after each facet of creation, he, he valued it. Every element of creation on its own has value as evidence in the refrain of, and it was good. Light and dark, 
are good. They have value on their own, separate from the rest of creation. Fish, birds, animals, humans, trees, all have value inherent of themselves, and we can see it when God declares that each one of these upon creation is good. But what we also see is that when all of creation is together, existing in an interconnected and independent way, we now see the refrain change from good to very good. And so in this interconnected and interdependent world, you and I have been placed as co-inhabitants with the rest of creation, but then we are given a special task. A task that sets us apart from other creatures. We are told to subdue the land and to rule over the fish and the birds and the animals. Now, subdue, we'll, we're not going to spend a lot of time there. Subdue simply refers to working the land in terms of agriculture and this idea of of filling or occupying the land. There are other times in which Israel is told to subdue a land and as, in, and as they move into the promised land and what that has to do with is occupying or filling. Okay? What I want to focus on this morning, though, is this idea of rule. Rule is, well, it's an interesting word. It's used twice in verse 26 and in 28 that we are to rule over particularly the animals, animals, birds, fish, and other creatures. Older translations, as many of you are probably familiar with, don't use the word rule, but they use the word dominion. And dominion, for a number of reasons, has fallen out of popular use because it, it conjures up this image of dominating over creation, right? This, this idea that we can kill whatever it is that we want to kill, that we can exercise authority in any manner we want, no matter how destructi destructive it is, that all of creation exists simply for our benefit and ours alone. And, and, and I don't think that that's what Genesis is saying at all. And so the idea of dominion has fallen out of popular use because we have to remind ourselves, the earth is not ours. Right? The animals that are on the earth are not ours to do with what we want to do with. That didn't make sense, but you know what I'm saying there. The earth is the Lord's, and the cattle on a thousand hills belong to God. So everything that exists belongs to God, and we then have dominion in the sense that we are stewards of the things that God has entrusted into our care. And the way in which we exercise dominion, then, is reflective of God's care for creation. But we don't care for creation in the same way that God does, because we are creatures. We are not God. We're, we're, we're in the image of God. We can reflect God in unique and wonderful ways, but we are also of creation. You remember last week when we talked about when God created humans, he scooped up dirt into his hands and breathed life into it. And the dirt in Hebrew, the word is Adama. God breathed life into the Adama and formed Adam. Adam, literally from the dirt. Humans come from humus, right? We come from the very ground that we are called to cultivate, and so we have to recognize that we have a very unique relationship to the creation around us and to the ground itself. And, and this has been the problem with a lot of theologies surrounding this idea of dominion, is that it forgets that we are of the world. 
We are of creation itself. Uh, theologian uh, John Haught criticizes a lot of theologies of dominion when he says this, a theology of dominion or stewardship often fails to accentuate that we belong to the earth more than it belongs to us. That we are more dependent on it than it is on us and that we are of the earth and not living on the earth. So what he's getting at here is that most of the time when we think of dominion, we do think of it in terms of we get to do whatever it is that we want with creation. The land is ours to use. Animals are our consumption or our benefit, our pleasure, our whatever it might be. They serve us. We get to dictate how they're used, if they continue to exist, uh, how the resources are allocated, how we get the resources, like all of that. It's just up to us. And, and then it gets, this idea of dominion gets combined with poor eschatology. This eschatology that says it's, the earth is just going to burn up in the future anyways. So since we're on earth only for a limited time and eventually we'll get off of this place, then ultimately what we do or don't do with it doesn't have any real lasting consequence. The problem is, is you cannot come to that idea that we can just disregard creation from any honest reading of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. You have to disregard those texts to end up with that theology. You have to not only throw out Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but you have to disregard Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the prophets, and ignore the fact that God is caring for the birds of the air so it would be logical to assume that if God is caring about them, we should also. Humans are creatures made from this world for this world. We're rooted here. We are tasked with working the ground and caring for fellow creatures. There's another theologian by the name of Ellen Davis. She defines dominion as skilled mastery among the creatures. That you and I in our set-apartness have skilled mastery. We, we, we have the ability to learn and, and devise technology and to do things that gives us more mastery. It's, that's, that sets us apart. And so yes, yes, we are fellow creatures, but our special ability to have skilled mastery is part of what makes us into the image of God. And then we have to use that ability to master things and to be skillful at things in such a way that we reflect God's care for creation. So if that's true, the dominion is the exercise of skilled mastery over creation, then I have to ask the question, what does that look like? Because I think sometimes all of this can exist very theoretically. And so I want to try to get really practical for the rest of the morning. One of the ways in which we can think about skilled mastery among the creatures is by going to Scripture and, and, and seeing what Scripture puts together. When we see in Genesis 1 that God creates the man and the woman, he gives them the mandate to fill the earth and to exercise dominion. And then the very next thing that God says is that there is food enough for all the creatures to eat. Now, if you want to just set, a, set this apart, set this aside, 
at this point, everybody is a, every creature on the earth is a vegetarian. I don't know if that means anything to you. I just think it's a fun fact. The uh, charge to go and kill and eat other meat doesn't come until Genesis 9. So at this point, everybody's a vegetarian, and God says there's enough food. So Ellen Davis, again, she says this. The Bible often conveys meaning by simple juxtaposition. So I propose this connection between the charge for us to exercise skilled mastery and then immediately God's announcement that there's enough food for all. As the creature made in the divine image, humans are meant to act in ways that maintain the food supply for all creatures. To use contemporary language, the integrity of the food chains may well be the test of whether or not we are fit to exercise a special place among creatures. I don't know if that gets at the whole idea of dominion, but what I love about that is I can wrap my mind around it. Like, that's tangible. There's so many things. When I think about caring for creation, when I think about stewardship, there's, there are often such big concerns that I don't know what I can tangibly do. Global climate change, the extinction of species, the loss of topsoil, the eradication of old forests, uncommon droughts and floodings. Like getting my mind around anything that I can do to address these particular issues feels just, it's too big, it's too monumental. I don't even know where to start. But paying attention to food, what, what food I eat, what food is available for other creatures, what food is being lost, like, I can do that. I, I, I can pay attention to food chains. And I, even though I don't know that it gets at the whole of what a dominion is, I think it gets at something really important. Because if we examine Scripture, and we just, we're just going to go to a couple here in a minute, we can see that the Bible is actually very concerned with food and the availability of food. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25, if you have your Bibles out. few pages to the right from Genesis there. Genesis 20, or Leviticus, excuse me, 25, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must, be, must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six days... Or for six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather your crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. Whatever the land produces on its own will be food for the people, for the livestock, and for the wild animals. Notice in this text the interconnectedness and interdependence on creation. Exodus 23.11 picks up on the same idea. It says almost the exact same thing, except it's got one additional 
uh, point in it. It says, for six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. I love this text because it assumes that we have a vineyard and an olive grove, which I would really like. Think that that should be a biblical mandate we all implement. But we can also see that very clearly these, cl- these, these verses are not about best farming practices. Like you can make the argument that these are very good farming practices to allow the ground time to rejuvenate itself and to be filled again with minerals. But that's not what these are about. God placed these limits on Israel. So one, they would remember that the land and the provision that comes from the land ultimately comes from God and not simply their hard work. Two, it reminds them that life is not simply about economic gain. Stop working. Don't produce. Just eat what comes. Three, that you, this, these limits ensure care and provision of all creatures, human and animal, livestock and wild animals. And fourth, these limits are meant to reorient Israel to the intended rhythm of life. Seven days. Or work six days, then rest. Work seven years, then rest. Allow the land, work the land, till the land, plant, do it all for six years, then rest. And then you can find another passage that says do it for 49 years. Then rest. And this rhythm that God is calling Israel to orient their lives around isn't just for, well, it's it's for all of creation. It's for us as human beings and it's for creation itself. But it's for us because we, as a unique people who, or a unique creature who has consciousness, we often lose sight of this rhythm. And because we lose sight of this rhythm, we begin to live lives that are, if we're being honest, unsustainable. I mean, how many of us, how many of us are running through our days at such a frenetic pace that all we can bear to do at the end of the day is plop down on the couch and binge Netflix? Right? And parents, we get a special exception, Okay? The rest of you. <laughs> I mean, we, live, we run our lives at such an unsustainable taste. Like, when was the last time that you devoted significant time to your marriage? Significant conversation? Con- significant energy? When was the last time you spent good time doing a hobby that you, you enjoy and that brings you joy? I think if we're honest that most of, us, most of us run at a pace that, think about it like this. Imagine, like just think, think of your calendar right now. Think of all the things that you did this past week, the things that you have to do in the next week, and the things that are coming up. Think of the pace that you're running at. Think of the energy that's required of you. Think of how tired you often feel at the end of the day. Now imagine yourself in a decade. Or two, and you're still running that pace. 
how many of you just went, oh. Because we know that that's unsustainable. That the thought of doing and running, doing life and running at the rate that we're running right now in 10, 20, 30 years is exhausting. And it's because we live lives that are out of balance. And because they're out of balance, because they lack harmony, shalom, they're unsustainable. Might it be possible then that our consumption of the earth's resources, whether fossil fuels, water, air quality, soil retention, fisheries. Now part of the reason they're unsustainable, like bumping up against sustainable levels is because we are unsustainable and how can we who are stewards, accept, stewards of creation be expected to keep creation at sustainable levels when we ourselves in our individual lives are operating at unsustainable levels? It's all connected. Stewardship of the earth is related to stewardship of our lives, is related to stewardship of our bodies, it's related to the stewardship of grace, of God's provision, and our understanding of it. Yeah. You see, this whole conversation is, is about rooting ourselves in the story. And rooting ourselves in the story of God. The God who creates, the God who breathes life, the God who sustains all of creation. And the story that we're rooting ourselves in and the story that we remind ourselves is not just the story that happens in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but it's also the story that has Genesis 3 in it, in which sin enters the world. And one way we can think about it is that when sin enters the world, everything goes out of whack, right? And suddenly something that once was very sustainable because of the harmony that existed between the different elements of creation now is out of whack as we humans introduce sin into this world. And now things are unsustainable. And there's a lack of harmony. But this story doesn't just end with Genesis 3. The story is also about God being so, in, so concerned with his creation, so, so mindful of it, loving it so deeply that he himself becomes a creature, takes on flesh, and walks among us and then invites us to join him. Come, be made, be shaped into the image of my son through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. God wants to remind us, no, 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 you're not a passive agent in this. But I have a plan for you. I have things that I want you to do. I want to restore you. This is why I've given my son the new Adam for you to model your life after. So that as the new Adam, you would become once again mindful of your role and responsibility within the crea creation. So here, here, take my yoke. Take the yoke of being a steward made in my image. And it's not a heavy yoke. You aren't responsible to control every facet of the created order. For us to think that we are is an incredible act of hubris. Which I think could be a legitimate critique of a big part of the environmental movement. That, that in some regards, what it's trying to do is act in the role of God 
and to take control of something that we cannot take control of and that was not given to us. But we are neither passive watchers who sit on our hands simply to say, like, God's in control and God's got this and we aren't big enough or aren't smart enough or wise enough to be able to do anything about it. And sadly, statistically speaking, this is the perspective of most Christians in the United States. That we're just, it's not something we should be concerned about. And that perspective dismisses the clear call on our lives to be active agents in God's world. Now, all of this to say, I want to be clear about this. Yes, we can use the world around us for the flourishing of humanity, and we should. But our use of creation must be done in connection with and in consideration of the flourishing of all God's creatures. We can use, as human beings, every, every part of creation. But we cannot take all of creation. And so maybe, maybe at this point in history, maybe at this point in history when, at least in the first world developed countries, at this point in history when excess is the norm, it would do us well as Christians to consider the limits that God has placed on our use of creation rather than our rights to it. Right? Because these things exist in Scripture. There is both the right and the call to use creation, to cultivate it. But as we've seen, there's also the limits. And maybe we're living at a time in which we need to consider the limits that God has placed. In the same way that we think about our financial budget and we think, sit down and we think about needs versus wants, maybe we have to do the same thing with how we relate to land and animals. And, and again, to bring it back, the easiest way for me to do that is to think about food. Right now, that's, that seems to be the thing that, that I can get my mind around. Maybe, maybe it's not for you, but maybe it is. And so I'll just share with you a couple of things that, that we're doing. Uh, after this summer and our time uh, away, one of the things that we had a lot of conversation about was expanding our backyard garden. Expanding our backyard garden and begin composting. And it's just a small thing, but it connects us to our land in a unique way. It connects us to our food in a greater dimension. It reduces our waste just a little bit, and at the same time it reduces our waste, it begins to transform the land around us from this ridiculous Indiana clay into something much more manageable and beautiful. <sighs> I, for me, this is one of the reasons that I hunt. I know hunting's not for everybody, for, but for me, hunting is a way in which I stay intimately connected with my food, and it also helps me think about the, the food and the, create, like the, the, the food chain and supply for animals. It's a way in which I stay conscious of land development. What land is being developed, what land is being taken away, what land is being impacted by different practices. One of the things I've thought about for us as a church, I'm throwing this out there, I don't know if the Spirit's going to move, but one of the things that I've thought about a lot is that we sit on nine acres here, and most of it is grass. Like, what would happen if, if we turned some of this acreage into a community garden? For us to use or the people who live in the apartments in the areas surrounding us. 
And now they become more connected to their food. They become more connected to the land. Maybe we take some of that produce and we give it to the food pantries that surround us. And now, now a little bit closer to, to what Exodus was talking about there in the, the provision of the land being for the poor in our midst. Right. maybe you begin shopping at a farmer's market a little bit more and you become more connected to your food in that way or you become more connected to the farmer who's producing it and you see the ways in which these farmers care for their land and the concerns that they have for their land and what's happening in, in, in the environment and all that. Maybe that's a way for you. I, I don't know, like each one of these this feels like it's a really small thing when we talk about the entire creation, but it's something that's tangible. It's something that I can do, something you can do, it's something we can get our mind around and it's a way in which we root ourselves in the story of God who created the world, filled it with all of creatures, set us apart, and said, you care for it. Care for this as much as you can. Uh, Thinking about our food, thinking about our food (laughs) roots us in the story of God who became flesh and ate and dined with sinners. Like you and me. Thinking about food reminds us of the God who sat among his disciples, broke bread, and said, every time you do this, every time you sit around the table, every time you share a meal, every time you break, every time you do this, do so in remembrance of me. Considering what we eat, I mean, Maybe it's not that crazy of an idea. It might just be the thing that connects us to God, to each other, and to creation in a whole new way. It might be a way in which we stay connected to that story. That story that sometimes feels far off and, and ethereal. Maybe, maybe it makes it more earthy. And maybe in the process we find a little bit more harmony, a little more shalom, a little more the way it's supposed to be. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you are more concerned about this world than we are. And we give you thanks that we can trust that your hand is still undergirding all of it that your breath of life is still sustaining it. We give you thanks that we can join with all creatures in the worship of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we give you thanks that through Christ, our Lord, we are being remade. I'm reminded that when Adam and Eve were created and placed in the garden that they fulfilled, they functioned as gardeners. When Mary saw Jesus in the garden on the morning of resurrection, she mistakenly, she mistook him as a gardener. Perhaps you are calling us back, calling us back to that ancient practice, being intimately connected and dependent upon the world that you created and ultimately upon you, the creator yourself. May we enter into the rhythms of sustainability. May we trust in your provision. May we care with the compassion that you do. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.